and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. On this month's podcast, I'm chatting to Lara Prescott, author of The Secrets We Kept, a thrilling tale of secretaries turned spies, love, duty and sacrifice which was inspired by the CIA plot to infiltrate the hearts of Soviet Russia, not with propaganda, but with the greatest love story of the 20th century, Dr. Zhivago. The Secrets We Kept was an instant New York Times bestseller, has been translated into 29 languages, and will be adapted for the silver screen. Laura received her MFA from the Michener Center for Writers at the University of Texas. She also studied political science at American University in Washington, DC, and international development in Namibia and South Africa, and prior to writing fiction, Lara worked as a political campaign consultant. In today's episode, we discuss how books can change the world, writing historical fiction based on real events, and using visual exercises to understand the rhythm and balance of your novel. The Typists. We typed 100 words per minute and never missed a syllable. Our identical desks were each equipped with a mint-shelled, Royal Quiet Deluxe typewriter a black Western electric rotary phone, and a stack of yellow steno pads. Our fingers flew across the keys. Our clacking was constant. We'd pause only to answer the phone or to take a drag of a cigarette. Some of us managed to master both without missing a beat. The men would arrive around 10. One by one, they'd pull us into their offices. We'd sit in small chairs pushed into the corners while they'd sit behind their large mahogany desks or pace the carpet while speaking to the ceiling. We'd listen, we'd record. We were their audience of one for their memos, reports, write-ups, lunch orders. Sometimes they'd forget we were there and we'd learn much more. Who was trying to box out whom? Who was making a power play? Who was having an affair? Who was in and who was out? Sometimes they refer to us not by name, but by hair color or body type. Blondie, red, Tits. We had our secret names for them too. Grabber, coffee breath, teeth. They would call us girls, but we were not. We came to the agency by way of Radcliffe, Vassar, Smith. We were the first daughters of our families to earn degrees. Some of us spoke Mandarin. Some could fly planes. Some of us could handle a Colt 1873 better than John Wayne. But all we were asked when interviewed was, can you type? It's been said that the typewriter was built for women, that to truly make the key sing requires the feminine touch, that our narrow fingers are suited for the device, that while men lay claim to cars and bombs and rockets, the typewriter is a machine of our own. Well, we don't know about all that. But what we will say that as we typed, our fingers became extensions of our brains with no delay between the words coming out of their mouths, words they told us not to remember, and our keys slapping ink onto paper. And when you think about it like that, about the mechanics of it all, it's almost poetic. Almost. But did we aspire to tension headaches and sore wrists and bad posture? Is that what we dreamed of in high school when studying twice as hard as the boys? Was clerical work what we had in mind when opening the fat manila envelopes containing our college acceptance letters? or where we thought we'd be headed as we sat in those white wooden chairs on the 50-yard line, capped and gowned, receiving the rolled parchments that promised we were qualified to do so much more? 
Most of us view the job in the typing pool as temporary. We wouldn't admit it aloud, not even to each other, but many of us believed it would be a first rung towards achieving what the men got right out of college. Positions as officers, our own offices with lamps that gave off a flattering light, plush rugs, wooden desks, our own typists taking down our dictation. We thought of it as a beginning, not an end, despite what we've been told all our lives. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the Riff Raff Podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, good to be here. It's good. Yeah. Oh, I'm delighted to meet you. I love the book. And um, yeah, I'm delighted to be chatting to you today. Please can we kick things off with you telling us a little about your debut novel, The Secrets We Kept? Yeah, The Secrets We Kept is set in the 1950s during the Cold War. And it's narrated primarily by women's voices. And it tells the true story of the fate of Dr. Zhivago and how the CIA had used it as a tool of propaganda during the Cold War. And I just found that subject fascinating. So it's historical fiction based on a true event. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's such an amazing, like, ripe topic to have discovered. <laughs> and could, yeah, can you talk a little bit about when you, were you a fan of Dr. Trivago? I heard a rumor that potentially you might have been named after one of the uh-huh. characters. <laughs> but yeah, when did the idea, when did you hear about this story? So I was always interested in Dr. Zhivago. I was named Lara after Boris Pasternak's heroine. Um, so just a lifelong love for both the film, the David Lean film in, from 1965, which is just a masterpiece. And then I finally read the book when I was in high school and I was going through my Russian author phase. <laughs> and so I had been reading Tolstoy and Pushkin. And I thought now is the time I need to read Zhivago. I want to know, you know, why I was named Lara. And of course, like then I was fascinated with the romance and I kind of was almost skipping ahead, like get back to Lara and Yuri. (laughs) I want to know what happens between them. Um, But I've read it every few years since. And I think as I got older, I would start taking different things away from it. And when I was in my 20s and starting to become interested in taking my fiction my fiction to another level and becoming a serious writer, I reread it at that time and I was just blown away by Boris Pasternak's sentences on the poetic level. And so I was looking at it from this whole new lens and then reading it in more recent years, I started becoming most interested in why it was deemed so subversive that it was banned in the Soviet Union and you know, which led to 2014. And I read a Washington Post article about the Zhivago mission. And the CIA, thanks to the authors of the article, the CIA had released about um, over 100 documents, redacted documents and memos about this mission, this true life mission. And so I read this article and I immediately went to CIA.gov to read all of the redacted documents. And I was absolutely just taken by this almost stranger than fiction mission that used a book um, because the CIA thought it could change the world. Yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) How wonderful that you've, I mean, I have to confess, I haven't read it. It's <laughs> no, it's so I, I need to now. So yeah, so uncultured, but I will be reading it. Um, but like to find a book that like means that much to you, and then to read it over and over again, get different things from it. It's kind of like teaching you different aspects of the writing process, maybe. Absolutely, like, you know, like with the sentence structure, and then seeing the sort of like how powerful literature can be, like mm-hmm. via the CIA. When you discovered those files, that must were you like, this is a book, and I'm going to write it. <laughs> I did. I thought I had been, and then I just started researching everything I. Could. And then the authors of the Washington Post article wrote a book called The Zhivago Fair that was published just, I think, a couple months later, started reading that and just 
going deep into any book about um, Dr. Zhivago, about Boris Pasternak, um, about anything related to the early days of the CIA. And so I, but it wasn't until it was so strange, a voice came to me, which Excellent. is something <laughs> I think is so cliche or writers say, and I never, ever believed because it never happened before. Um, but I was reading these documents and the voice of the CIA typists came to me because I kept thinking there's so many redactions. So it's just like black, all the names are removed, some of the places, times. And I was like, the CIA typist would have known before the redactions, they know these secrets of the great secret keepers. And yeah. so this, the first, the prologue came to me um, right away. And I was yeah. just experimenting with it. I never, I always was saying, I don't know if this is going to be a novel, you know. I mean, even up until when I had like 100,000 words, I wasn't, you know, I was like, this is a novel, but maybe, you know, I think I can do it. Yeah. So That's that was the inspiration that by like writing came through those voices. Yeah, I love that voice as well, because like it's, you know, it's kind of like a collective voice of the typist. Mm -hmm. And then it's also kind of slightly gossipy, yeah. but also slightly tight-lipped, because obviously that's their sort of job. But they're also these badass women, that have, a lot of them that have done incredible things in mm -hmm. war efforts and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and they're, but then they're, do, they're doing this job, they're kind of not often referred to by their names and mm -hmm. all stuff like that. It seems, yeah, like the, I, it's, it's nice that that's the first voice that came to you, because it's a real, like, it, it really hooks you in. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like it hooked you into the novel, and then you were forced to write it. <laughs> and almost, it, it's strange for this writing process, I had almost the big I knew I wanted that to be the beginning and I also knew what the ending was going to be and I wanted to bookend with the typist voice this plural voice and yeah. I kind of was working to that point throughout yeah. the writing process okay that's so great having the I mean I suppose if you you must have had the ending because of all the research that you've done yeah the yeah. historic ending but then my so the ending ending is you know I have these fictional characters throughout the book that you know I had these redacted names and I was imagining who they might be and what their lives were like so I had you know you have the historical timeline and what transpired with um, Boris Pasternak's novel but then I have timelines for each of my characters and my, many of whom are my own invention and so how does it all come together in the end and I was working towards this invention of the typist's ending yeah. you know because if, if not a spoiler but it flashes forward yeah god it's, it, I mean it's a seems like so did you actually you actually mapped out timelines with the historical facts and then with the these characters that you created like yes. so you had that all because like to me that is yes. like sexy planning i have <laughs> i have pictures of me um that of i had this giant whiteboard and then i had like colored markers for the different threads and then i had the historical <laughs> timeline running below it okay. um so it looked almost like out of a detective TV show like True Detective with it looked like a madman's um, <laughs> drawing with markers on the window. Yeah, <laughs> and like no one else could decipher it but me because it was just name. You know, I mean they could see what the the dates were, but the rest of it they're like, well, who are these people? Um, so it looked kind of funny. So my husband was always I was always moving things around. He was always taking pictures of it. Oh my god, I feel like I want to see a picture. <laughs> and of it. I'll show it to you. Yeah. I'll send you one. But I think um, you know also much of the actual structure. And the weaving in of the voices, because there's five voices in the novel, came in in the later drafts. Because I would often write just a character all the way through. Okay. Um, so my first draft, you know, I could have 50 pages of arena. 
mm-hmm. or one of the characters. And then it came and it was, you know, your first, my first draft was a mess. Like it was just um, all these scenes and these characters and it didn't have the structure that it does now because I wasn't plotting per se. Um, but uh, my second draft and then the third draft, it became tighter. I started learning how to place, you know, I thought of the East and West Mm. was that that's when it came. So going back and forth and who comes when and what like builds on each other. Um, And that I think, I think the first draft is really difficult because you're working with a blank page and you don't really know if the words are ever going to come or you're ever going to fill up the document. And then it's, my second draft, I think, was mentally the most tasking because mm-hmm. I was putting all of these pieces and all these characters together. And I would just stare. I would stare at the board <laughs> in my room and just, like, erase things and move it around and then look at it. And then the colors for the different characters also show me how it balanced out. Like, am I too much in this character or in the East or the West? Um, and so I could almost see it visually. Mm. And that was a tip given to me by my professor, um, the author, Elizabeth McCracken, um, who wrote a, I mean, writ- has written amazing books, but most recently, Bowl Away. And she told me, um, I was telling her where I was at with my drafts. And she said, you know, it might help to do a visual exercise with it now that you're moving on to the second draft and she suggested note cards or anything that I could just visualize. And I think that, or printing it out and like putting it on the floor. And did you, and was that kind of um, what you were printing out and putting on the floor was the net, that the scene that was going to happen at that point or just the character that you were going to feature at that point? Well, what I did, I didn't do the printout. Um, I did cards. And so I would, I wrote all the beats of what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, so for the characters, like, this is the main beat of this scene. Almost like screenwriting. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I actually was taking screenwriting at the time as nice. well. So I was almost, like, planning out the major beats and having the note cards. Were you using Save the Cat? Were you using that kind of structure? Um, so I think maybe in my revisions, I was thinking more towards how do I get this the plot tighter because I'm very interested in plot. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, if you were to read my first draft, it's very esoteric and it just, I can go on ramble on about art and literature. But when I had um, the Save the Cat, I actually, I think I read that probably around the time I was starting my second draft because yeah. um, I was in an MFA program and we have, you're, you get into the MFA program for, I got in for fiction, but part of it is we also had to do a secondary. And so I nice. chose screenwriting, which was, a, which makes, um, I went to the Missioner Center for Writers in the University of Texas. And that's what made that program stand out so much to me because you got to do both. Yeah. So I was learning more about kind of plotting in this very serious way because screenwriters, it's, it's tight. You know, you yeah, have your plot be. points by certain pages. And so that helped me tremendously. But that visual exercise um, really helped. And I continued the visual exercise up until I submitted it um, to my agents and to the publishers. I kept moving things around. Even past that point, I still had it up. Um, and when I got feedback from my editor, I was like moving things around yeah. and adding and so, things. And so it was because like the structure is really interesting and it also keeps you super engaged because you're you're always kind of like, you know, you're kind of, you're totally bought into one storyline and then suddenly you're jumping to another part of the world and like, I, it keeps the pace going. Mm-hmm. And so in, but in terms of, in terms of the plot, it was, you, it was, it was the balance that you were trying to find or were you trying to find sort of specific things where you were 
sort of kind of ramping up the action because even though yeah. it obviously is a very factual book and um, a very beautiful book and like a love story and all kind of all kinds of things, it's also pacey and quite mm-hmm. spy thriller really. Which yeah, I quite like. So were you when you were um, thinking in terms of plot? Mm-hmm. What was kind of your strategy? I definitely was thinking about a couple things. So the characters. They start at different times. So I have one timeline starting in the 40s and the other timeline starting in the late 50s. And I knew that like midway through the book, um, at a certain point, I wanted those timelines to sync up um, and then just be propulsive to the end. And but when I was thinking of actual what chapters and like when what part of this person's story do I have now next to this other ones, I wanted to keep building on, um, you know, for instance, you know, we get the typist and we, we are introduced to the characters um, and we see that there there's eventually going to be a book that's mm. that's part of their one of their missions. But you're not really sure what the book is yet. But then on the East, you're learning about the writing of this book and how it's being banned and what's already happened to Olga Evenskaya, who is Boris Pasternak's real life mistress and muse and how she was sent to the gulag. So you're getting the weight of it. Mm. Why is this important on the East? And so when it comes to the West and you get this book, you have more of a foundation. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think I did like cut off certain chapters because I wanted to leave it, um, you know, wanting to know what happens next. Yeah. Um, God, it's such a great story. It's such a great story. Like, and did you, how did you, doing all that research mm-hmm. and mapping everything out, how did you... Because like that's the kind of thing that I would very much get lost in. Yeah. You know? Like, how did you stop yourself from getting lost <laughs> in that process? I think people had said to me at a certain point when I was going down rabbit holes of no needing to know exactly the type of shoes that you could get in DC, and I still like I love like, but I would spend like a day on that. Um, like, what kind of shoes could I buy in 1957 at Hex Department Store? And, and so what would the, what would they be wearing? And I would spend so much time and I think it came to the point where I realized, and I think someone else might have, maybe one of my professors told me that you might be procrastinating the actual writing because you're just adding more stuff. Um, but that's probably true because writing is, is hard. It's, for me, it's always hard. Yeah. There are a couple of days within, I could say the whole time it took me to write the novel, there's a couple of days that it just felt amazing and flowed easily um but most of it's really hard so i was always you know going even though i had this huge foundation of research i was always you know looking up archival photos and just going down these rabbit holes which is enjoyable and i think some of that stuff did make it in and i think just knowing the shoes that they wore during that time actually helps i think there's there's definitely you've mastered the sort of evoking the sense of the time like Mm -hmm. it really felt like you could see it and so i think that must come from looking at all the i think so so it's not wasted i think that you should just maybe be honest with yourself as i got to after a certain point that okay like I really just need to s- keep sitting down and finish this third draft, yeah. you know, and because, and, you know, it's a different hat that you have on when you're revising. And so much better, isn't it? It so gets much more enjoyable. <laughs> someone told me, and this is what I definitely think, revising is definitely more enjoyable. And it's because every time you revise, it's getting better. Mm. Um, but I think then you can have the risk of 
never stopping. And then it just get at a certain point, it gets worse. So it keeps getting better. And then if you keep toying with it, it could get worse. Yeah, and you can send yourself bonkers. And you can you? go crazy. Yeah. How, how yeah. long did it take you to write it? Um, so three years until it's sold to the publisher and then another year, a couple more months working with the editor. Um, I was even writing, I wrote an additional chapter during that time from the perspective of Sally. Um, and, um, some storylines were shifted around. Um, so I think I would say like three and a half half years. years. And were you writing that as part of your MFA? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. My MFA was three years. And were you, so you had people helping you and looking at the, looking at the story and you were being educated about how to write a book at the same kind of time. That must've been a lovely period of time. Absolutely. I think if I wasn't in the MFA, this novel would have taken me five years to write Mm -hmm. because, um, I had a career before. I, I went to my MFA, but part of it is it, since it was a fellowship um, and I was getting paid to be there, you could not work any extra jobs. Your job was to write. Mm. And that time and just, you know, that kind of feeling like I'm now a writer and I'm also, this is my job was such an experience and also having professors who were helping you every step of the way and not just with the writing and the craft of it but just advice of you know hearing about you know they too get you know they have the confidence still won't arrive even if after book five it's Mm -hmm. it's heartening when when writers are honest to you and and like kind of getting rid of the myth making behind writing and just saying yeah this is hard this is really hard yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't get easier. I suppose and that also in terms of the blank page, mm-hmm. that sort of stops you just letting it defeat you because you have deadlines and you have people to show it to and yes. you have people to discuss it with. That's also true because you have these deadlines and check-ins. And so, you know, I had to check on, like, this is where I'm at, showing them pages um, to graduate. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if you have two weeks to finish a chapter, you're going to finish the chapter um, or you're going to have something to show. And not only that, you're going to be showing your cohort. We had 12 um, in my cohort and you don't want to you want it to be good um it's not we didn't have a competitive environment but it, it, at the same time you know their level of writing is, was so excellent that i didn't want to be you know some like castaway. so you're, sure you're everyone working felt that. Everyone, everyone felt that, that so i think everyone elevates everyone else so did you have the idea for this book that then get got you the place on the course at the, for then for you to work on it is that how it works so i had the idea for the book but I got into the program under a short story okay. that I had written because I had heard the advice. And I don't know if this is true or not. In fact, other people have gone in with novel excerpts. But I heard that a short story is, is more – it's easier because you have the whole thing and you can kind of see the writer's entire craft. So I was writing short stories to get into the MFA and just enjoying writing short stories yeah. too, which was a completely different topic. So different. I'm yeah. Like, and it's a whole different art in a way because yes. you have to get so much in in such a short time. Yes. I'm yet to master it. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> I mean, like, the short story is, you know, perfection, whereas the novel can be so much more expansive. Um and satisfying in a totally different way. I think that a story touches on like this moment, um, but on the sentence level, it's 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 almost as perfect as you can get it. Yeah. Um, and then a poem is even more so. Yeah. Um, Do you write poetry? 
No, I used to when I was in high school and college. I had this terrible zine that I made. I have, I still have all of them, and I used to leave them around Washington D.C. And it was um, what was it called? It was called Meow, (laughs) and and it was like yeah, it was it was like political poetry. I was really into activism and. It was really funny. It's really cute looking back, but (laughs) kind of embarrassing. Oh, my God. I hope you've still got some copies in your garage. Oh, I have all the originals. But, (laughs) yeah, I love poetry just in general. But it does does teach you how to make make a point in such a succinct way. Same, yeah. same with short stories. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of your characters because they are okay. all wonderful. And um, I love the, the view that it, you're telling the stories from all, it's all women. I mean, even though you've got kind of key male characters, obviously, mm-hmm. it's always mm-hmm. the sort of women around them that you focused on. And did that come from finding these, did that, cut, that came from discovering the typists and then discovering the names that were redacted? Was it a conscious decision mm-hmm. that you wanted to focus solely on the women? It wasn't at first. Um, I thought at first... Well, well, I, I guess so. I didn't think at first that I was going to write the whole novel from the typist perspective, but I soon ran into problems with that um, because I just couldn't, t- from their limited um, perspective, they didn't know everything else that was going on. And so I started thinking about the polyphonic novel and having all these different characters telling different parts of this, this story. Um, but at the you know, I quickly started researching about the early days of the CIA, and there was this document that's still online. It's called the Petticoat Panel, and it was a study that Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, did in 1953 about the roles of women at the CIA and are they being underutilized. And this was actually pretty forward-thinking of Alan Dulles thinking we have these employees are we putting them to use? And it, reading that document and seeing kind of what the lives were like and kind of the glass ceiling that was so low for them um, really inspired me to kind of develop other characters within the typing pool and what what they would be doing and the roles that women were playing at the time. And one of them was being a messenger or a carrier mm. of message, messages because um, no one would suspect that a woman in a nice dress or just walking in the park would be carrying this very important document. Yeah. Um, and then the other roles women played, there was the Sally type of character who is the glamorous woman who's prying secrets out of powerful men um, due to her, her charms and beauty. And I had fun with playing with those roles and what the, and breaking free from those roles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't completely intentional until I think like halfway through I'm like oh I'm really only interested in the women and I think that's just my interest I I'm not as interested in the famous man um (laughs) I just and I don't read those books anymore it's been I seek out women writers um all the time and it's just what I want to write and I think what I want to read and what I think um people that would like my book are also looking for so for sure, um, I, lo- I loved reading it. Like the and some, there are there's there's so many there's such badasses. There's so, yeah. so much in, so many interesting stories and so much pain and so much like understated, um, sort of suffering. Like you know, and yeah. so such strength. Yeah, but all of them are incredibly strong. Like you know, like go, like um, oh when Olga when she goes mm-hmm. to the the gulag. I mean, oh yeah. my goodness, it was really interesting reading about um, kind of like how writers and stuff were persecuted in yes. um in the east and and 
Stalin, you know, putting all the writers in the one place so they could be close to their views, <laughs> which I quite like the idea of, but I know that wasn't necessarily Yeah, what I think was. there was ulterior motives of putting them all in the, you know, government housing in the country. Yeah. Um, but that was a really fascinating period of time. So, you know, in the 30s and looking at Stalin's purges and how writers, poets, even meteorologists, scientists, doctors were persecuted if they didn't kind of toe the, the state line. Um, and how that affected these years when, when Boris was both writing um, and then when he was thinking about trying to get it published. Yeah. And, you know, that background of what happened in the 30s is very much um, speaking to that present moment. Yeah, and that kind of, you know, fear of what were the repercussions of getting the book out there to the world, but also knowing that that's, like, you know, the right thing to do or, yeah. like, the brave thing to do. And, like, you know, it was it was... Sort of makes you think as a writer what how far you'd be willing to to go for that kind of thing, but it seems Absolutely. like that's the reason we all do it in a, in a way for the, yeah. for the truth. But obviously, hopefully, we won't get to a point where it's as dangerous. <laughs> well, I mean, it is it is still dangerous in certain countries. There's yeah. there's writers imprisoned in China and Turkey for for writing what they want. Um, so I think, and I'm in, involved with uh, Pen America, um, which is an organization that supports these writers that are being persecuted. So. Unfortunately, it's not as you know, prevalent, but is still is still practicing um, to censor writers, mm. um, and also you know books are still being challenged; they're still being banned, and that's important to shine a light on too. Absolutely, was the organization called Pen America? Yeah, like P E N America, and then there's Pen International okay, too. I think I've heard. Of, I think I've yeah, and um, so and like the the idea kind of you know like the the CIA focused on this soft propaganda, like soft propaganda, you mm-hmm. know, kind of art and music and literature to advance the cause of the West and to kind of, you know, sort of like spread ideas that could potentially help them sort of thing. And like the tactics used were incredible, you know, weather balloons dropping, leaflets and, yeah. you know, how they how they, how they they located people that would potentially be more sympathetic mm-hmm. to sort of Western opinions and mm-hmm. got the book back into the country. You know, like it's um, an incredible, like an incredible way of, I don't know. It was exciting to read, and you know, and it's and, it, and interesting that that much emphasis was put on it by the CIA. Yeah. And um, yeah, at one point in the book, Teddy discusses the key role that art and literature plays in mm-hmm. um, in spreading democracy and how books are key to demonstrating that great art can only come from great freedom, which is kind of what we're <laughs> talking about. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to conveying this idea in the book and um, what it meant for you to write something that shines a light on something? such important, you know, free artistic expression. I suppose if you're involved in these yeah. organizations. It... I, I'm fascinated by how books can change the world. I don't think I would be a writer if I didn't think books could change the world. I think that there's so many books I've read growing up, um, whether it's Toni Morrison's Beloved or Edward P. Jones' The Known World, that have put me in other people's shoes that I've never met um, they could be from another part of the country, another part of the world, and it creates this empathy in in the reader, and you remember that, and I think it's something you take for the rest of your life. And so, when the CIA was using books, they knew this, and they knew that this wasn't some, you know, dropping a bomb or you know some immediate effect. It's something that grows in someone. It's a they called it the long game, mm. um, the long game of soft soft propaganda, and. 
the thinking was one, you know, the ideas within the books themselves could help change people's minds, but also knowing that a book like Dr. Zhivago was banned and getting it into the hands of those readers, of course they want to read it. You know, this is Boris Pasternak was the most famous living Soviet writer at the time. This is his first novel. They wanted to read it. And when you read it and you wonder why was this banned? Why was this kept from me? And I think that's what happens with banned books. You know, I remember um, I wanted to read Catcher in the Rye um, in grade school and I went to the library and the librarian's like, oh, no, we don't have Catcher in the Rye here. And I, I was like, why? And she goes, oh, it's it's not allowed in the school. And so, really? of course, I wanted to read it and I found out my sister's shelf and read it right away. I mean, I was younger. I probably didn't understand all the nuances of Catcher in the Rye in the fourth grade. But <laughs> at the same time, you want to read it. And so I am interested in how books I still I think can still change the world and still create that empathy. And I wanted that to be the major one of the major themes of this book. Um, but I'm also on the flip side of that, I'm interested in how sometimes these how books can be used as propaganda without the author's wishes. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? You send your book out in the world and you know, some uh, an entity that you might not even agree with is using it. And what how does that make you feel? Um, so it's kind of a strange thing to have your words put out there and people can make of them what what they will. Um, but it is definitely something I'm interested in propaganda. I'm interested in general yeah. as well. Was it was it, was I did I read um, I read an article about um, a video I'm reading a book at the moment this is what it in a video about kind of like not maybe Nazi propaganda and like yeah how you, or was this was maybe it was an article I was reading when I was doing my research for mm. you but like the sort of like the videos that they had that were so kind of like how how they how speech was able to kind of hypnotize people to, oh yeah yeah it's I mean it's fascinating isn't it it's true <laughs> um, speech and and it's still going on today I mean there it's the same sort of tactics that are involved even though it's more on this global instant forum mm. um, with communications and it might be a tweet or maybe a YouTube video YouTube especially um, can have such a great impact on changing people's minds perhaps mm. down a bad path. Absolutely! Oh my God! And, and deep fakes and all that kind deep of deep fakes is yeah. the, the the scariest like new development. Yeah, of terrifying. Absolutely very. Terrifying. Um. So um. So just quickly, one one little jump back to the structure thing because you know structuring yourself is something that um a lot of aspiring novelists struggle with because yeah know, you, and you said that you were sort of to start off with you were writing very much just kind of each character and that kind of mm-hmm. thing and then and the structure came later to you in the in the writing process like the sort of second. Yes. What advice do you have for people that are struggling with structuring their novels? That vision, as well, yeah. in addition to the visual thing, maybe. I think I'm interested in other books that have really unique structures. Mm. And I think you get so much from reading books like that. And I mentioned, um, or that have polyphonic narrators. And that's when you have like structure at its um, kind of utmost level. Um, but Edward P. Jones is the known world is a prime example of that. There's so many different narrators and so many different points of history and perspectives and seeing how he weaved them together in this great novel is so helpful. So read other novelists that are doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
know, you look at it from a writer's perspective. So I'll like kind of dissect it. Like how does he do structure? Um, or, or even going back to Anthony Doerr's book, All the Light We Cannot See, and he goes back and forth between different voices. You know, wh- how did he accomplish that? And people do it different ways and you figure out what works for you. But that's the only way yeah. I think you really learn. No one's going to sit you down and tell you. Um, you might get a great reader or a mentor that can can say this isn't working, um, but they're not going to teach you how to do it. It feels like like structure can be so key to like, you know, because for my my book, my first book, until I had the structure, I didn't feel like the book was even doing anything. I was just like, yeah. What's going on? And then as soon as the, stru- the stru- I knew the structure that I had, it felt like everything kind of clicked into place. And I'm in that vortex at the moment of wondering what the structure is. So yeah. Any kind of kind of advice? I and um, you never. It's different for each book. So now I'm thinking of these other books and like, what's the structure going to be? And I yeah. think I even was joking around that I only want one narrator in, in a room, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know just something. The but most simple concepts that you could just make simple, it as small as possible. But, I mean, that's also makes it way more complicated in other ways. Um, but, yeah, I don't think it's – I'm already researching all these different characters. Oh, really? and so. <laughs> how, did, how did you find writing this kind of polyphonic cast of characters? You know, did you, did you find that it was difficult to jump between them? Or do you, do you feel like you were sort of thorough with one character and you wrote all of their storyline? How, how, how did you approach – it um different ways so yeah i would write a large amount of that character and i would also listen to music the whole time i was writing um and different music for different characters oh my God, I love that. and so i have playlists for like all on my my spotify that are just like the characters names and it actually and i would listen to the same songs over and over and over again so the words were just not even in my head yeah um, and some of them, a lot of instrumental music as well. But so if I was shifting from east to west, like if I was writing something from a Sally um, uh, in the west, I would write, I would listen to like old R&B girl groups from the 50s Amazing. and jazz and Parisian music and just wherever, she, Italian music and anything I thought she would listen to. And I, I do list a lot of um, I, I think I talk about Sam Cooke in the yeah. novel, um, but he's someone I would listen to all the time on yeah. the Western side because I love Sam Cooke. Um, Me too. And then on the other side, when I was on the Eastern side, um, I would write, you know, Tchaikovsky and like the old Russian um, composers, but also just more instrumental, Sufjan Stevens, something a little more somber. Yeah. And it would immediately put me more in the mood of what I was writing. Did you, so, did you listen? So you... Li- did, would you listen to it as kind of like, right, I'm getting in the zone here, or would you just start it and then you did something? It's like something in your brain could just like click. It helped me get in the zone, but so I would, I have like noise canceling headphones and I'd put it on and then the music would come on and I'd be like, now it's time to write. It was part of my routine. Oh, um, I love your routine. Some it's people so just like... couldn't. <laughs> some people are like, you can't, I can't write to music at all. Um, but I think if you keep listening to the same song, it sounds like a mad. I was, I remember I, I didn't know my husband was home and I was writing in my office and I was playing the same song over and over again. Like, <laughs> and he's like, what were you doing in there? <laughs> <laughs> like, just driving yourself mad. Just in the zone completely. Yeah. It's a really lovely idea to think of it like that, you know, to, to like switching between the characters. I've heard that a couple of times, people getting into characters by sort of putting on a specific song. Or yeah. It's a nice, a nice kind of, nice to sort of have a bit of a ritual that means that you're like, right. It's a ritual. Now I'm writing. Now I'm going to be writing this character and get focused completely yeah. on this. It's like a nice, really lovely tip. I might give it a bash. And I also, <laughs> um, 
I would put the character or, you know, I had a picture of the CIA typist on my screen, like as a screensaver. And so when I was writing the typist I had, I always would look at that when I opened my computer or a picture of Olga or a picture of Boris. Like I would rotate that too during the whole writing. Oh, wow. Yeah. What did you have any other things like that? Like I, I like the, any other rituals? Um, yeah, I think I, I would... I have daily rituals um, when I'm writing. I write the same times. I only can write for two hours at a time, If I'm, especially if I'm composing. Yeah. Um, if I'm editing, I can do that for much longer stretches. But two hours of just writing on the blank page, it exhausts your brain. Mm. Then I have to go, either I work out or have lunch, and then I write again. I cannot write at night at all. Mm. Um, I'm not, and I can't write, you know, at 5 a.m., but... You know, it's, it was kind of almost the work day that I was used to. So I'm writing in the morning, I have lunch, we're in the afternoon, done by early evening. And that's when I got in the zone. And when I broke away from the routine is when I had um, stretches of just not being able to produce anything. Yeah. If I went on vacation or if I had visitors, I would almost become a little resentful, sad, like not like outright to them. But I was like, well, like my write I haven't written in two days. And now it was almost like a reset. Mm. Um, and it is hard when you're traveling. I'm traveling now on book tour and it's hard to, ha- you know, have that routine. Yeah. Um, some authors just can write from inspiration and finish in a couple of months. I have to have the routine. Yeah. I think it's so key, isn't it? To like just being in the zone and knowing that's knowing that there's no kind of excuses. That that's just what the day, yeah. what the day holds for you. Yeah. And, and kind of getting into the zone like that. It's a nice, nice way of thinking. So you're not doing that at the moment. Are you, no. are you working on a second novel? Um, right now <coughs> I'm in the research phases and I have two novel ideas. And one is more of a historical-based novel and the other is a contemporary um, kind of contemporary novel, but that's all I'll really say about okay, it. Okay, but yeah, that's cool. it, it's still, um, I'm using notebooks and writing down scenes and possible ideas and things yeah. like that. Oh, so it's a nice, joyous stage of like, it is, it's easy to do it when you're on the road. Yeah. And cool. And um, how are you, how are you finding being on a book tour? It's great. It? So I love going to the book events and meeting with readers. I feel like it gives me it is unreal to see people reading my book still and seeing it in bookstores um, and having people come up to me and tell me that it meant something to them or getting emails of so many people telling or posts on Instagram telling me how much it meant to yeah. them. And um, that's what means more than any review, more than any, you know, bestseller list. That is like the most important thing um, to me. And I so I just it's the it's been amazing absolutely amazing to do these events um traveling is tiresome yeah so the in between like going to the airport like doing that stuff not my favorite (laughs) but i'm not complaining some people say like i I got really delayed at an airport recently my friend was like airports are perfect writing time i was like no not for me me. i'm gonna i'm gonna watch like real housewives or something i just want my brain to be shut off during those moments or read you know that's not a bad thing to to just to be like have some time to read i suppose yeah or watch watch trashy movies exactly exactly Um, so many so obviously we've spoken about how many of your characters in the novel are real people Uh uh-huh and um, how did you approach embodying them, 
respectfully and yeah. accurately. And did you have any particular worries or concerns about yeah. how to fictionalize the real events? So with the real people, I read just every primary resource you could get, especially the firsthand accounts. Um, Olga Ivanskaya had published a biography, autobiography of her experience in the late 70s. And that book is out of print but I got an old this was like right after I read the Chicago Affair I read this book um, and so hearing from her voice and hearing from Sergio D'Angelo who oh, is wow, the cool. Italian in, who actually takes the book from Boris Pasternak in the Soviet Union and takes it across the border um, to the west he has his own self-published um, account of what happened wow. and so some of those snippets using those snippets of real dialogue and the like actual events and what what the day was like mm. what it felt like what they were wearing um any real details i would try to put in there yeah. um but then the trick of like historical fiction what makes it a joy is what happened behind the scenes so what happened we know that olga went to the gulag and all these things but what happened during the first meeting of Boris and Olga after she came back. There's, you know, there's nothing about, there's like little tidbits, but I want to, I want to create a scene of, of them talking for the first time. Yeah. And for that, it's more about capturing the essence that you felt from those, those primary resources and, and going with it. And I think, yeah, I think, that's the fun of historical fiction, and some people might not like that. They um, they must might prefer to just have the nonfiction account, and that's fine too. Um, but for me, I, I love kind of the imagining of what happens behind closed doors. Yeah, and those conversations and like that, like the that, the emotion behind it. Like yeah. Yeah, they're the delicious bits. Or trying to get in their heads. Like yeah. how, because so many of my accounts are first person accounts. And so it's not even from like a, we, I can get into how she felt. Like what's it feel like in her stomach? What's it feel like in her heart mm. when she sees Boris or when, you know, Arena sees Sally? Um, just, it's like having that em- embodiment of a character that you cannot obviously can't do in yeah. nonfiction because you just don't know you know what they were feeling yeah you um, can't make things up and that's the joy yeah of and yeah. so yeah you can you can think about it and i mean maybe it's not um exactly what they felt at the exact moment but it's uh, reading enough you think yeah i think this is how it would go yeah and it sounds like you really did your research into the sort, sort of people that they are and their experiences and so maybe that's kind of like a good a good point is to make sure that you know what as much as you can yeah and then and then fill the gaps in between yeah, um, yeah. Do, do you have any advice for people out there that are sort of looking to do the same with fictionalizing it with real people you know um yeah i think that just try to track down the, the closest sources you can um so you know the primary sources i think or in interviewing people i also interviewed for um an expert about women's early women's spies in the oss and early cia uh, finding those experts um or if they're still alive um and interviewing people that's helpful and i think that i i was always intimidated to ask these experts because i thought well i'm not a real writer even you know and that was such a it's a, a stupid thing to think. Mm. And when I finally got the urge, you know, the the courage to like hit send and like email some of these experts, they were always willing to help you. Um, 
maybe they won't like, you know, you have to be respectful of their time. But if you are, I think you, you don't have to think of yourself as lesser than think of yourself as a writer who's writing something. And that is, it was like a really important lesson for me. Um, And then our archives are just great. So like the CIA's archives or historical photo archives, I got a lot of, um, I got like a Time magazine from 1958 with Boris on it, reading not only the article about him, but what were the ads like that, yeah, you know, yeah. ads about um, the space program were in there and whiskey and cigarettes and... Yeah, that, um, that, that adds so much to your characters and what, yeah. you think, what you're going to make them hold or do or yeah. be wearing or all those kinds you know, of things. Yeah. yeah, so it was kind of... I got the uh, the magazine for this Boris article, but what I found out was, wow, like they really like advertised this type of, you know, cigarettes to women in this way. And it was it was all added up in the research. Wow. It sounds to me like you are 100 percent a real writer. You've worked out this wonderful, <laughs> like done all of this wonderful research like and have all of this routine that you just sound. It's just, yeah, it's lovely oh, to hear. Oh, thank you. It's really lovely to hear. Um, so just quickly, just one more, one more question. So can we um, just talk a little bit about your journey to publication? How, sure. how have you found the process? Um, so it's been a wild ride, pretty surreal for me. I think what happened first, I had an agent approach me because I had the first chapter of this book and I had submitted it to a summer fellowship program and I didn't get it. Um, and so I was, you know, I didn't really care because I was used to rejections. <laughs> and but a couple weeks later, I heard from this agent um, and he said someone who was a judge for this fellowship had passed him my excerpt oh, and wow. he wanted to talk. And I was just like, wait, what? You know, and so I get on the phone and actually have two agents and they were both on the phone and they told me how it came to them. A friend passed it along. So this is right up your alley. And I said, you know, yeah, this is my novel and this is where I'm at. Uh, but it's going to my this was my first year at um, working on it. I said, it's going to take a few a while. It could take a couple years. And they said, well, wait. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they had only read about 25. I think it was like 25 pages. And they said they wanted to wait for it. Oh, and God, incredible. so I didn't query for agents. Um, I, I went with them. And yeah, I didn't, I mean, I would update them with emails, like I'm at this page, I'm at the, you know, things like that along the way. But um, then they finally saw, you know, the draft, the fi- it was probably my fourth draft. Um, and when they saw that they, I have, one of my agents was an old editor at Algonquin. And so she helped me a lot with some of the edits, but also I was working with Elizabeth McCracken, who was my thesis advisor on edits. And so that spring was, you know, another round of edits. Um, and then it went out right after I graduated um, from my MFA program. Oh, wow. And I, I told everyone that knew about it going out, my family, um, not to talk to me about it <laughs> for months. I was like, do not mention it. I don't want to hear, like, did you hear back? Because in my heart, I just didn't know if it would ever get picked up by a, a publisher. And I'm such a pessimist by nature that I think I like have these like low expectations and the first weekend it was out, um, my agent kept updating me and saying, you know, okay, four, eight, or four editors want to talk to you. Seven editors want to talk to you. Oh, wow. Then it just, it went up, it went way up. Um, How so high? <laughs> I think it was 20. Oh my god! In the U.S. This is the U.S. That's incredible. Um, and, and so I was, I spent three days talking to editors and like, it was very regimented. You know, they had a certain amount of time that I would get off, have a break, keep talking. 
And when I spoke with my editor at Knopf, Jordan Pavlin, um, I knew it, I, I knew it had to be her. Um, she not only loved the, the book, but she had insights on how to make it better. Mm-hmm. And that is what I, and, and not only that, um, just the authors that she edits, Karen Russell, Tommy Orange, Nathan Englander, um, just I mean, an incredible amount of um, experience and ushering new writers into the world that I knew I wanted to go with them. Um, but then there was an auction and, wow, how and all that. <laughs> it was like, I felt sick to my stomach the whole time. <laughs> so it, it honestly, it felt like surreal. It felt like I was having an out of body experience. It wasn't like this, like it felt like nerves, like high tension. Yeah. I think I lost like a couple pounds that week. Cause I was so <laughs> like, I couldn't sleep. Um, but then there was an auction, then it sold in the U S and, then it went to the UK and then other foreign foreign publishers. Oh my goodness! Well, yeah. congratulations. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible book, and oh, your, thank and you. how you approached it is really inspiring. And oh, thank, thank you for sharing your insights with us. Thanks so much for having cool. me. This was great. It was so much fun. Thank you. How do you fancy working with an author within your genre on your work in progress? It's now a possibility with the Riffraff. We've got a wonderful roster of more than thirty authors for you to work with starting from around 150 quid so head over to the website the-riffraff.com to check it out cheers